Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Sounds of the World podcast. Uh, Today, we have a a wonderful guest we're really excited to talk to. Uh, He's a native of New York City. He's a second-generation Korean-American. He received degrees in piano and conducting from the Mann School of Music, where he studied with N.T. Milani Memorial Conducting, or he was awarded the M.T. Milani Conducting Fellowship and the Peter M. Gross Fund. He also studied at Universitat Mozartium Salzburg in Austria, during that time, he served as assistant conductor with the Salzburger Kammerphilharmonie. Uh, he's conducting mentors included many, such as Michael Cherry, Dennis Russell Davies, Samuel Wong, David Zinman. He's also participated in uh, Kurt Masser's conducting masterclass, the American Academy of Conducting at Aspen, and the Tafel Music Baroque Summer Institute, led by his, his keen interest in historical performance practice. He served on the faculty at Queens College, Aaron Copeland School of Music, the City College of New York, and the Haverford College. Uh, We are going to talk to him today about his multifaceted career as a conductor and arranger, pianist and art entrepreneur, instead of entrepreneur, that was a tongue twister, Uh, as founder and the artistic director of Ensemble 212. Please welcome Yoon J. Lee. Yes. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you, William, and thank you, Hillary, for inviting me to the Sounds of the World. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's so yeah. great to talk We're to you. So excited you're joining us here. Um, we've yes. been chatting on Clubhouse, and I'm really excited to, to get to interview. <laughs> yeah. And all those foreign terms that I had in my bio, I just tried to make it sound fancy, but yeah, it, it is whatever it is. <laughs> That's okay. I just apologize to all those countries for butchering every single word. And <laughs> I have been to some of those places. I don't know why. My tongue is just tired. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's great. Like you said, you know, we've talked a little bit on Clubhouse. And uh, for those, you know, who is interested, you know, we the, we go into some really great, wonderful deep dives about mental health and, and musicians and, um, and all sorts of fun categories and... Uh, subjects in our clubhouse talk so uh please you know let us know if you want to be involved i think i mean i hope i'm not stepping on bones yeah no please i'm like ellen i would love to have anybody join jay's a frequent visitor and yeah we're just out to kind of spread the word on mental health and give everyone a safe place to share their experience yes it's absolutely wonderful platform and i think clubhouse is going to really really grow not only your room but in other rooms too because there are many musicians who are using this platform to you know, to, to interact and to engage. And it's just really wonderful. It's a really wonderful platform to have where we can discuss these things with other musicians. Yeah. And I've really seen it grow. Like I joined oh, two months ago and there was like one or two music clubs. And now I'm like finding more and more. And I'm like, oh, this is so exciting to watch this really take off. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and it's on Apple and Android. So, I was, it, you know, for a while yes. it was Apple, it was or Apple, Apple exclusive. <laughs> I actually went out and I bought an iPod, the 2019 version of the iPod, just to get on Clubhouse. Wow. But now I guess I can, you know, just use my phone now. (laughs) Yeah. The dedication. (laughs) They came down to us plebeians, so. (laughs) So, cool. Well, you know, maybe we could just find out a little more about your background. And um, you said, you know, you've earned degrees in piano and conducting, but uh, maybe... We can talk about how you got into uh, music itself, and um, as a young age, I, I would assume you started pretty young. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, it turns out that my parents, they love music. They love classical music, and when they were growing up in Korea, they uh, were kind of... Uh, um, exposed to this kind of music and um, it was a love of my 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 father's my father wasn't a professional musician but i did have um i do have one professional musician in my family it's my dad's younger brother he's a conductor in salzburg and that's why i ended up actually going to salzburg to study not with him but uh, at the mozart team school where he was on uh, faculty and staff 
And uh, my grandmother uh, was also a pianist, an amateur pianist. And the, my earliest um, memory of being musical was when I would go over to her house and I would sing hymns. And uh, that was my first exposure to music. And um, as far as I remember, uh, I, I loved music, so I was just an intrinsic part of who I was. And I remember when I was about four years old, I had this uh, cassette tape, you know, back then we had cassette tapes, of the uh, Beethoven Choral Fantasy. And it was one of my favorite pieces. And of course, I didn't understand any of the lyrics, but um, I just loved to try to sing along. And, um, you know, since I didn't really play an instrument at that age, um, singing was the way I could just kind of express myself. And um, I actually started uh, uh, my first um, musical instrument was actually violin. So I started on the violin at age five and then um, at age six, I started piano. And um, without really taking it seriously, it just became kind of um, something that I was very happy to be a part of. of course. I never liked practicing, of course, but I did enjoy playing. It was always fun. And uh, one thing led to another, and as I became more and more serious, I went to um, the Manette School of Music pre-college division, and that's where I had my first orchestral experience. And um, it was really, really um, exciting to be with other musicians because I went to a school where we didn't really have a very strong music program. But to be around other peers who were in orchestra and taking theory and ear training classes, I really felt like I was at home here. And that led me to go to an arts high school, the LaGuardia High School. And um, in high school, I was very, very active uh, in orchestra, uh, even though my main instrument was piano. Uh, I played in orchestra six days a week, and I was involved with um, not only my school orchestra, but also um, a youth orchestra outside of um, the school, and then the Manhattan School of Music pre-college. So three different youth orchestras, six days a week. Wow, that's a, yeah, that's that's a, a lot. lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it was only natural that I wanted to become a conductor because the joy of being around other musicians, um, it really, really made me feel like more so than piano, because piano, I feel like you're cultivating your own individual art. But the mm -hmm. idea of being in a group setting and you're with your peers and you're making this great music together. And like, I love orchestral music. It's, it's just, it's just so like um, powerful and emotionally um, connecting mm -hmm. you know not only with the music itself but with the other people too you know so that's what has always been a, a joy and one of the driving uh forces that led me to become a conductor oh that's wonderful especially like there's something that you said just like feeling at home with other musicians i still remember like the first time i entered university and was around other musicians i had a similar experience and at first i was terrified because I was, I was kind of an underdog and a bigger pond or little mm -hmm. fish in your pond and I remember thinking like oh these people never like this will never feel like home this is so foreign to me and then like I don't know you give it a semester and you're like yeah I fit in here these are my people <laughs> but, yeah and, and you know when I went to uh when I went to Manus when I was doing my undergrad we had people from different backgrounds um we had some people who were who didn't have as uh much of a strong um I guess like a, a pre-college um, type yeah. education, you mm -hmm. know, and they were coming fresh and yet they adapted, you know, so mm -hmm. it was, it, you know, we had different people, um, you know, with different backgrounds. And I think that's really what's beautiful about music is that, you know, no matter what your story is, is that if you feel that this is something you want to get into, it, it starts to become a part of you and you start to fit in and you make, you, you make your, your stake in the game, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's Yeah, I think it's crazy to think that, um, you know, we all kind of go into the university or we go into some sort of musical program. Like for me to really feel like I was not the outsider who did music was when I went to high school. And it wasn't a, a, a art school like LaGuardia, but it was just the band program was really good. And I got into the band program and I was like, I'm, you know, this is going to be awkward. I'm a freshman. It's high school. No one likes me, you know. And literally by the end of the week, I was hanging out with so many people. 
and I yeah. felt like I had found like a second home. These were people the rest of my life going through high school and then some into college and even afterwards. Like yeah. I still talk to these people and yeah. You know, I it's it's you know, we know intrinsically how bonding and binding music can be. Yes, and how absolutely. communicative it can be. And yet we are still like, oh, I don't know if I'll fit in. I don't know if, <laughs> if they'll like me. You know, it, it, that yeah. social anxiety is really amazing. Yeah. Um, I still remember to this day, like, how much, uh, you know, how much fun we had um, with my friends playing in, in, in orchestra. And then it, it's the memories we build with the concerts, too, that really mm -hmm. last. Um, and it kind of is the same way for Ensemble Twin, too. So I think also uh, for me, it, it, what I've always enjoyed was, you know, just hanging out with people afterwards or during. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, um, in a in high school, you know, when we were playing in youth orchestras, you know, we'd have, we'd play all sorts of games in between, you know, the uh, concerts or whenever we have break, uh, things like that. And, you know, all those memories, they kind of are like the, you know, extras that were the bonuses that come with playing together as a group, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like musicians go through such rigorous, at least like when you're in like university or like a educational setting, you go through this like rigorous, I think mean, you're playing all these concerts, you have all these practices, you're like, I mean, I lived at that building like eight to 12 hours a day. And I remember like, particularly it was like, we had like, it was called like the Odyssey of the Stars concert. And we were like stuck, or no, maybe it was Fusion. They did this concert where, I don't know, we were in rehearsal for two hours and it was like the whole choir was on the stage. And they'd go like ensemble to ensemble. And so like, they'd be like, all right, choir pop up. Okay, choir, you're down. Now it's the orchestra. And like, you're just sitting there like over and over, like sit, stand, sit, stand. And I remember like looking at my friends, like I will remember this forever because it's so brutal and dumb and fun. <laughs> and and time. And yeah. I was mad and cranky and laughing. And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, music, um, you know, there's, in some ways, there's no right or wrong way to, to present it. I mean, yes, there is, but I, I think what it is is it, we give some kind of um, experience to the people, not only to those who are performing, but also to those who are participating or watching, you know, the event unfold. And, um, you know, it's, it's those memories that I think we build, which are really the lasting things, not so much how... You know, hopefully, you know, you play the performance really well and it does make a lasting impression. But I think unless you're like a really, really, um, you know, music, uh, a, a very, very deep music loving geek, you know, many people who just enjoy music as a more, you know, just a more everyday thing, they're not really going to walk away saying, oh, my gosh, that phrasing, you know, at you know, in that middle section of the Beethoven, you know, symphony was just so exquisite, you know. I, I think, you know, people go there, you know, more for um, the enjoyment, the, 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 the interacting with the people and things like that. And it's almost like anything else, like in sports, like, you know, you may have that like one or two like sports geek who are, are like, they're like studying the game and they're like, you know, seeing uh, what is the pitcher throwing, you know, how is the manager, you know, you know, coming up with a strategy with this so-and-so batter or versus the pitcher. But most people are there with their family. They just are cheering on their teams, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> that's the way I see it. Well, I was just at a baseball game last night, and I was like, my coworker was like, how was the game? I was like, I didn't watch the game, but this, the company was great. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Oh, yeah. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, the few times we've been to it, sports programs whether it's my wife and I or friends like I hardly ever remember the game unless we've won you know of course then you remember yeah but it's like that one play or <laughs> yeah you know uh but most of the time it's just like yeah we had a great time we talked and, you know we had a I ate a $15 hot dog. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think it's very important that, especially now uh, that live, live music and live performance are coming back is, and I'm kind of guilty of this as well. Like I didn't really think about making the concert experience fun for my audience. And I think mm. we need to do that, you know, um, because 
you know, it's not all fun and games, and we should, of course, have you know some educational aspect or something about the performance that would make people want to come back, right? But I, I think so many times we're not taught to, uh, especially uh, you know, coming from a conservatory background, we're not often trained as to how to interact with audiences and how to really relate to them. I think it was more about, you know, at least the way I was trained, um, you know, back at Manus, um, uh, you know, we, we were mostly focused on how to just simply perform. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, even at my small school, it was about phrasing and, and, and really, like, because I was a pianist too at first, and it was all about you know, evoking the sound through maybe the body gestures and stuff, or, you know, can you really, can you hold a little bit longer before you're hitting the top of the arpeggiated chord or something, you know, and, uh, and like, those are wonderful feats, and it definitely helps with the musicality and the piece itself, but um, mm -hmm. it'd be interesting to see what kind of things you you could do to create that kind of entertainment in the music. I mean, the the one thing I always remember, the most entertained I ever was for a piece, was watching the video for Peter and the Wolf, narrated by Sting, and uh, it was it was puppets, you know, except for Peter, who was you know, and the and the humans, they were all real, um, but everyone was a puppet, and I was just like captivated <laughs> i mean even now like if i if i saw it on tv i would just sit there like a little kid going oh, what peter gonna do you know mm -hmm. what are like i guess my question is like what are some ideas that you might have thought of that would bring some more of that kind of entertainment value or things that really kind of engage with an audience beyond just the aural side yeah, so one of the things I experimented with when I was uh, doing live concerts with Ensemble 22 more regularly is we uh, I came up with this idea of having live program notes. And I actually got this idea from watching this, um, watching music videos. Um, uh, back when I was um, really young, there was a, a series that had a channel called uh, Pop-Up Video. And what it would do was they would have like music videos and they would have like a little bit of tidbits of like, you know, fun facts or like some information about the music video, like yeah. you know, how the setting was or like, you know, what that. happened uh, during yeah, those things. They had those on like VH1 or something too. I yeah, it was. Yeah. I, I, they had like a dedicated channel and I remember watching these and, I, and I, it always stuck to me because um, I didn't really listen to a lot of like... Um, pop music. I was kind of a bit of a classical music snob, I'll just admit it. <laughs> you know, um, but whatever. Anyways, but the thing is, though, uh, those music videos, those pop-up music videos made me watch and mm -hmm. made me listen to some of those songs because there was something other than just the musical aspect of it, which made it interesting. And I, you know, I always remembered that idea. And I said, you know, uh, maybe about seven years ago, I said, hmm, you know, what if we tried that at a live concert and see how it goes? And so uh, one of the first thing, uh, concerts I ever had that uh, feature was for, uh, for the Mahler First Symphony, which we mm. performed with Ensemble 2 and 2. And I explained to the audience, you know, this is something experimental that we've never tried before. But we're going to have like an online, uh, on-screen program notes while the piece is being performed. And, you know, it, it'll have various different, you know, information tidbits because it's not going to be all about one thing, but it'll have things about, like, music theory, which is for the more geekier people, you know, and then it might have some uh, things about musical terminology, something about the instrumentation, but also historical facts or, like, things that were happening in the world around that time. And then sometimes we'd have like a, you know, piece of artwork that was very popular around that time or influenced by that, you know, movement, for example. Like if we're, for example, if we're doing an impressionist piece, you know, we would have like, you know, uh, pictures of like impressionist artists like Renard and Monet and things like that, you know, if we're doing like Debussy, you know, as an example. Um, and, um, 
for the people who were well versed in music, they found it distracting. But mm-hmm. the people who had never really gone to a concert, they loved it. They said, you know, this was very, very helpful. It was engaging. It was informative. And yes, it may have taken a little bit uh, of uh, attention away from just only watching the performance, but it did give a different side of, you know, what, you know, could be, uh, uh, I guess, uh, absorbed by a person while they were at a concert. So we continued that uh, right up until the pandemic, uh, up until our last orchestral concert, which was 2019. Wow, that's, I love that idea. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I get flashbacks to, like, I can understand how those with a bigger musical background might be like, this is off-putting, it's distracting me from Mahler or the text or the, you know, whatever I'm hearing. And those who aren't as musical musically knowledgeable are like wow this is really cool and you know because even though i have a deep musical understanding i remember when i was watching pop-up videos on tv and it would be like uh what is it like teenage spirit by nirvana you know and i love that song but like as they popped up it was some information i was like oh i didn't know that or i didn't know kurt cobain was from auburn washington or you know and or I didn't know this, or that was cool, but it, like, I feel like it's, it was like, really, in, like, in, I thought it was fun. <laughs> yeah. There's that satisfaction of, like, you feel like you've, like, one-upped, and you're like, oh, I know that now. Like, I didn't know that going in, but I know that now. And, like, because I'll yeah. even, like, when I go to concerts with, I have a lot of friends that love to come support me in my musical concerts, but they're non-musical. They haven't studied it. They're just there because they love me. And I'll try to clue him in and be like, okay, so like in this movement, like this, this, this and it happened, you know, and the, he was thinking this when he did this and he, he wrote letters and we have the, and they're like, wow, that's so cool. Like I had no idea. And I mean, I just feel like it, like those little tidbits of information make it that much more special to kind of engage with. And I think that's a great idea. Cause I'm like, if you don't like it, just close your eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. You're also, <laughs> you're also getting, you know, two piece, two prizes for one price. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, you pay to go in, but you're also like, I, it, you know, it makes me love a piece of music even more because now it's like, I don't have to go to music history course. Here it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love all that nerdy information. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a mix of nerdy and like basic information. So, um, you know, uh, sometimes I would just have things like a lot of the notes I found I tended to create because I actually conceived of these things myself. So it could, it could be, you know, done any number of ways, depending on who's, you know, um, coming up with the, 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 the notes, so to speak, you know, as to, you know, what information to put when and where, but one of the things I tried to do was I tried to make sure that at least key points have the listeners get, you know, turn their attention to when a phrase was, um, when the piece was coming to a climax or if there was a you know change in sections or if there was like an important um, uh, moment in the piece, you know, I'd be like, mm-hmm. okay, now here comes a transition section, listen for the sequence of, you know, fits or, you know, now we're going to have a fugue section, try to listen for each of the voices so that it's not completely just, oh, you know, you know, Mahler was born in 1860. It was, right. was very dry information, you know, although I did provide some of that as well. Um, you know, I tried to provide some information where it, they really, if they watch and they listen at the same time, it really helps them to understand what's happening. Yeah. It's like PDQ Bach and the, uh, um, the, the, what is it? He did that with a Beethoven piece. Oh, yeah. I think it's... Um, it's, it's the Fifth Symphony. It was yeah. actually something I was working on. So I didn't know this, but a lot of people adapt that, that particular text to any number of sports. I thought it was one, like, I originally learned it as like a, a, a baseball game announcement, but apparently right. it, it can be done for any number of sports. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. If you check it out, it's a PDQ Bach. Uh, I can't remember his real name. Um, it's Peter Shickley. Yeah, that's, that's his real name. Yes. Yeah. yeah I've never heard that. It's cool. He takes Beethoven's Fifth and uh, 
you know, like the the key moment when the oboe holds over the orchestra stops. You know, he's like, "What? The oboist has gone rogue. What is he doing?" <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so I mean, you've you've talked about it a little bit, but you should. I, I think we should definitely know more about Ensemble Two Twelve. Okay, so Ensemble Two One Two. The name comes after the area code of Manhattan, or uh, at one time it was the entire area code of New York City before they started. Having like you know, they started splitting splitting off you know to the smaller break off codes, but um, yeah, I actually started this ensemble because I wasn't really getting enough opportunities to conduct, and um, my uncle that I had mentioned earlier, who lives in Salzburg, he actually created his own orchestra in Salzburg, mm. and that had kind of inspired me to try to do the same thing in New York. And I know I knew that a lot of uh, conductors had done this. Um, where they would create ensembles in, in New York. Um, even Marin Alsop, um, she, when, when she was studying at Juilliard, I think she created an ensemble that she was at the helm for for several years. And so I kind of did it um, the first time right before I went to grad school, actually. And um, I really didn't know what to expect or where, where this was going to go. But... Um, uh, I did the concert and I, I really had no funds. I was just basically begging, you know, people for favors and um, it was rough. Um, there was even one musician um, that my mom found for me. Um, he was a busker on the, on the subway and she's like, oh, I think his tone's not bad. So she asked him, hey, you know, my son's doing a concert. Would you like to play? And, you know, and he said, sure, I'll show up. And he showed up at the rehearsal and he, and he played the concert, you know. Wow. <laughs> So um, that was the first uh, concert, and um, have, after having done that, I realized that I, this was something that I, I felt like I could continue, and I did one again during my first year of um, you know grad school, and then after that, I said, you know what, I think I can actually do a season. Let's try that, you know. So I did like a season of like four concerts, maybe. And uh, like just from there, like things started to evolve, um, and then we incorporated as a you know um, as a nonprofit organization. We formed a board. Um, uh, we started to find you know small honorariums to give to the musicians, um, and then we added a concerto competition or like a young artist competition uh, to try to get um, give opportunities to. Uh, you know, young instrumentalists in the New York City area. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it started, it was all about like bringing people together or, you know, creating opportunities that didn't exist, you know. So it, that was really the driving force behind it. And uh, it was kind of in full motion. It really became like uh, the center of my, or the focus of my life, um, like from uh, like about, 2010 to about 2015 or so where I was really you know just running this organization we started a uh, composer residence program and uh, you know it started to really um, you know pick up and then um, I, I realized that it was becoming very difficult to do this on my own so I, I got a, a associate conductor involved uh, a good friend of mine uh, Kyungwoon Kim, who was a graduate of Curtis and um, Juilliard, and he helped me for several years. Um, one of the composers um, in residence that I worked with, um, his name is Teksu Kim, but we kind of started a series called New Music for Young Audiences, which was to try to educate um, uh, you know, children about new music, because we had, there are a lot of uh, or organizations that do educational concerts, but as far as I know, there wasn't any that was focusing on new music. Mm -hmm. So we try to pick, you know, accessible short pieces and, you know, we try to um, get children to, or younger students to listen to uh, these pieces and, um, you know, kind of get them to be more familiarized with this so this doesn't feel like something that's very exotic or wild when they grow up, you know. I've actually found that many uh, younger people are very open to new music rather than the, you know, older people who are more traditional and they're looking for their, you know, their fix of, uh, you know, Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, Brahms, Wagner, or whatever. 
right you know? <laughs> so so that was uh that was very very um uh you know i felt it was a way that we were trying to break you know break some ground into new uh, barrier you know break barriers through you know some new activities that along with the uh, live program notes I felt like it was a way that, you know, Ensemble 22 said, you know, we're, we're not, we're, we're going to try to be different in, in some ways, you know. And um, also um, having the orchestra available also led me to do a lot of the arrangements that I made, um, you know, for the Mahler symphonies, for chamber orchestra, because otherwise many groups wouldn't be able to perform them live, you know. Yeah. And uh, they have... Um, there's a, there's several arrangers who have made like chamber ensemble versions of the works, but they're quite small for like maybe 15 to 17. So mm -hmm. my arrangements are actually for chamber orchestra, you know, so like a, um, you know, an orchestra that's capable of playing like, you know, you know, uh, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Schumann, that sort of size of an orchestra. So we're talking about anywhere between like 30 and 50 players, maybe as opposed to, you know, 60 plus or a tiny uh, chamber uh, ensemble version of the Mahler symphonies. Very cool. Yeah, that's such a, I love that. I, I mean, you have to be, I applaud you on your bravery for starting that. I mean, that's, thanks. you know, I, uh, I feel, um, you know, anyone who, who has those kinds of guts to be like, you know what, I, I need more opportunity. I need to do this. And I'm going to do what I can and keep pushing forward to it. And while it's not, um, you know, it, fast exponential growth, you know, it's not a stock or anything. Oh, like that. definitely not. It's, you know, it's <laughs> that slow and steady grind that you're putting in. And you're obviously seeing the fruit from it. I mean... The fact that you're getting more musicians and you're doing now an assistant and you have a board and you're a nonprofit, you know, and you can do honorariums for performers. I mean, that's 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 quite amazing considering, you know, some things they start that way and then, you know, they quickly fold, <laughs> you know. Sure. So, bravo. And congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, thank you. Well, I appreciate that. Um, so for anyone that's listening out there, um, I would just say go for it because, you know, even if um, even if it doesn't last a very long time, it's just that you just have to get that first concert done. And then it'll lead you to the next concert. And then it'll lead to the third concert, the fourth, and so on and so forth. Because it starts to build momentum. And then you start, after having done a few series, you start to see what works, what doesn't work. And um, I call myself an entrepreneur because, again, I felt like there was that void. And uh, the, the most grateful thing about it was, um, the most meaningful thing was that I initially said, you know, I just wanted to, conduct more but what it turned out to be was was about creating opportunities for other people you know so the mm -hmm. you know the musicians who played in the orchestra really enjoyed playing uh pieces that they would have otherwise never been able to play in the um conservatory settings because you know i mean there's so much repertoire out there that you know you just can't get through everything when you're in school you know right. so they, there were a lot of musicians who appreciated the fact that you know they were able to play the repertoire that they did with Ensemble 212. Uh, a lot of the um, young artist competition winners, um, you know, were very grateful because um, they had an opportunity to perform with an orchestra, with a professional orchestra, which it seems rare in, in New York. I, I don't know of a, like a, a major orchestra that has a, you know, young artist competition in, in New York City. Mm. Um, there are also... Uh, having composers, you know, having their works performed, they really appreciated that. And, um, and I, I just really enjoyed the fact that I was able to, um, be, be, be my own artist without, you know, this, nobody told me to do this. I just did it because I loved music that much. And, you know, it was a labor of love, not an obligation or, you know, a paycheck or something like that. And right. that's what I really, um, discovered is that you know there's always that conflict with uh, many people about you know uh, you know we we love music but how can we make a living you know mm. through that and what i realized is that while i didn't make a living you know i never you know 
paid myself um, anything substantial to actually live off of by doing this. But um, uh, but having the experience uh, of creating, um, I, we must have done about 70 concerts by now since wow. our inception. Not all of them were orchestral, but we've done various activities uh, with, um, uh, you know, with like, you know, with some, with some concerts, we had like a series, we have a series called like cultural convergences where we work with dancers. We've also worked with like non-Western instruments. And these are the things I think I would love to explore more of. And uh, for two, for Ensemble 2's future, we're actually looking at exploring um, non-traditional repertoire more and uh, less, uh, and focusing less on the traditional repertoire because you know, there's just so much uh, of the, the standard repertoire that's being performed by other groups that if we want to kind of uh, differentiate ourselves, I think the best route is to kind of do things that other groups aren't doing. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my God, it's fantastic. <laughs> the and, composer, I'm like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> right. And like, it, you know, it's so cool that you have a board that's all, you know, down for that too. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've, tried to pitch an idea for a piece or something to a, or an orchestra or a conductor or, you know, members of a board. And they're all like, well, you know, I'm not sure if it'll fit in our, our thing. Well, and, you know, and yeah, um, it's like, well, it's not that it's not that crazy. It's not, you know, it's nothing further than what you've done so far. It's just, you know, it's just I don't have a name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm not Verdi or, you know. Beethoven or <laughs> exactly so I think we you know you touched upon something I think you know going forward in the future um, I think musicians have to take things into their own hands especially if we're not employed by any um, agents like any institution but even there it's very hard to do exactly what you want to do because mm -hmm. um, one of the things I realized after or during the pandemic I should say is that um, I decided I don't want to pursue the um, traditional route of trying to become a music director or um, something of that sort. And that was a very, very big move for me to say that um, because I realized that, um, especially after having done many, many years with Ensemble Tour 2, uh, if, if one were to be employed as a you know music director, um, I feel, in my opinion, and of course, you know, people can disagree with me, uh, especially if they are music directors, but you're kind of limited in terms of the artistic freedom that you have, because you have budget restraints, you have, you know, um, programming restraints, you know, the, the, um, uh, you have to work with people in order to come up with a program that's going to be suitable for everybody. And so, for example, like, well, um, what you were saying about your, you know, if you wanted to perform or do a certain project, I feel like, you know, we should have the artistic freedom to you know, say, hey, you know what, I want to perform this piece, or I want to write this piece and perform it, and just be able to do it, you know, it's not, it won't be easy, but, you know, I think we need to take the initiative now, and we need to own our sense of uh, artistry, and we can't rely on others to give us the opportunity. Mm. I, I really hope that more and more uh, musicians will just create their own groups. It's, it's sort of like the way I see it, like as, as small businesses, you know, we can't look for, you know, these, you know, mega corporations to hire us and give us jobs. You know, if there's a need, you know, you, you create the business, you know, you create, you know, you create a way, you know, so maybe you would create a business to, you know, make a living but you know you'd create a concert or create an ensemble to pursue your artistic endeavors you know and i see no difference in that and i really hope more and more people will just do it you know so if you're listening and you've always dreamed of doing that project don't wait for somebody to give you that opportunity just create the opportunity for yourself yeah that's such a powerful thing i think especially like 
at least for me, like I was conditioned in the sciences, you know, growing up. And the idea behind that is you go to school, you go become an engineer, you go become a doctor, somebody hands you a job. I mean, they have their career fairs. They have, I mean, all of my friends were pharmacists um, in college. And I mean, we both walked out of college with, I walked out with like, like, okay, you're a composer, congrats, good luck, go get your master's now. And they were like, oh yeah, I have like six job offers and now it's just who do I want to work for and how much money can I make? And it was just so radically different to see like, you know, and like I, it was hard for me initially because I was like kind of stuck in this like poor pitiful me phase. I mean, and who, what, what 22 year old isn't where you're like, nobody's asking me to write for them. And like, I was hoping I'd be discovered by now. And like, you just, you know, all those like silly things that you're thinking, cause you just don't know. But the older I get, I'm, I completely agree with that idea of like, there's opportunity out there and it's a hundred percent up to you to go create that and go find it and go meet, meet people, make those connections and see where all of this can take you. Um, and I think that's something that I hope we can pass that message on to our younger artists and, you know, even artists that are struggling and, you know, whatever walk of life, like there, there is opportunity out there. You just have to go, you have to go find it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think one of the mistakes that a lot of conservatories made up until fairly recently is that um, they never really prepared um, the graduates of a, you know, if you earned a bachelor of music or a master of music, how are you, what are you going to do? You know, it's like they assume you're going to get an orchestra job. And, you know, maybe in the 20th century, you know, back in the day, like maybe mid 20th century, even, you know, there were plentiful orchestra jobs available that paid reasonably well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, uh, Broadway, you know, here in New York, I, you know, when musicals were written in the 50s and 60s, they were written for orchestras, you know, like mm -hmm. the pit was filled with musicians. Nowadays, you're lucky if you have like six people in a pit, you know, I hear very, very dismal, you know, stories. And it, it also, you know, um, a lot of orchestras, you know, regional orchestras in America are struggling. And I, I know from, you know, my friends who work in various orchestras that, you know, a lot of them are for service orchestras. They're absolutely not, you know, on salary. And if they are, they're not usually enough to sustain one, you know, with that, with that sole job that they need to get another job as well, you know? Well, that's, I agree with you because, well, and I, I'm coming from the singer's point of view. So I, you know, sang with the Billings Symphony Orchestra and I was like, I volunteered an hour of my week for... 16 weeks to prep for a concert and it's fun to do the concerts but it's also like you know that's something that I have to like okay I have to have a job I have to be scored myself I have to give you know two hours for whatever rehearsal and then block that off on my calendar and you know it's a lot of work to be able to go do that and then just go do it for free I mean it's enjoyable but it also it's not entirely sustainable <laughs> yeah yeah and th that's like one of the, the the problems i have um one of the frustrations i deal with as a musician is that you know um considering myself as a professional musician i would like to have uh, some platform or some space where music is the most important thing now, I understand it's a lot to ask for people that are non-musicians, you know, so I have to keep in mind that when I'm teaching my students, a great number of them, you know, like I'd say 99.99% of them are not, you know, aspiring to become professional musicians. So, you know, I can, I try to be tough on them and yet still, you know, have them have fun. Of course, I, I really want to teach them principles about, you know, being a good musician, but I have to also the same time understand that you know they're not going to be become professional musicians so um i i just i just sometimes wish that you know uh that there was a space for that and in many of my uh encounters uh you know working as a musician i've also you know encountered where 
I conducted a lot of you know community orchestras or you know university orchestras where they're not majors, and you know a lot of times I get the excuse, oh you know I have a you know chemistry you know midterm coming up, I have to go study, or you know I have a job that I have to work and you know I can't get out of it, you know so you know and of course you know I I understand, but it, it is sometimes frustrating when it, your job as a professional musician is to put music you know. Number one, you're dealing with, um, you know, people and, you know, rightfully so that, you know, music is number two, three, four or five on their priority list. Mm -hmm. And that's been always a kind of a sense of sense of frustration, um, mm -hmm. you know, when you're, you know, putting your heart and soul into this. And then, you know, I feel like sometimes it's not you know, always the same, you know, so it's people who are in that environment are very lucky. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard to come by. And I, I long for that kind of um, environment at some point. <laughs> ah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh. Deep. This is good. <laughs> so I have to know, as a big Mahler fan, mm -hmm. how did you go about writing chamber versions of his symphonies and Das Lied von der Erde? Okay. So this ongoing project actually just kind of started on a whim. The, the, I'll give you the whole backstory. So um, when I was in Salzburg, uh, our conducting class was studying a chamber version of Mahler IV, and this was the um, the Ehrenstein version. Ehrenstein was a, a pupil of Arnold, Arnold Schoenberg's, and um, this was created for, I can't remember the exact name of the series, but Schoenberg had a series of new music concerts that were written for um, for a very very small ensemble for like a salon room that he had in Vienna, mm -hmm. and so what he would do is he would take um, you know fairly recent or landmark pieces like, for example, um, Debussy's Prelude to the Afternoon of Fawn, Mahler's uh, Fourth Symphony, um, uh, even I think also Das Lied von der Erde, and uh, either he or his pupils would create. Um, you know, these chamber versions. There was also Bruckner 7. Wow. And they were written for like, you know, like single strings, um, you know, a few winds, and then a harmonium and a piano. And this was like kind of like the ensemble that it was written for. And um, when I was studying this arrangement, I felt that because they, they actually didn't have bassoon or horn, and the, the piano, I don't know, it didn't really feel like it really added to the arrangement. It was more like, Oh, we don't have any other instruments to fill this in, so you know the piano is going to take it over. And I felt that you know um, perhaps I could come up with a different uh, version of it. You know, again, this was for chamber ensemble, whereas I was thinking, you know, there might be a need for this for chamber orchestra instead. You know, so when I returned to uh, New York after my two years of study in Salzburg, I. Um, I had a lot of time on my hands. So this was the first time I wasn't in school and I was just out on the, in the workforce, except I just come back from Europe. So I didn't really have a lot going on in my life mm -hmm. aside from like these two small jobs I was doing. I wasn't even really teaching then. So I said, you know what? Um, why don't I give a shot at arranging? And so I, I started, the first thing I started working on was, you know, the Mahler Fourth Symphony. And it actually took me three years to finish that arrangement, partly because I was doing it on and off, but also because it was the first time I was doing something like this. And of course, by that time, I had an orchestra. So ding, ding, ding. I was like, oh, I know who's <laughs> going to perform this, right? Um, so we actually had a, um, a little like a mini competition to find a soprano to sing the soprano solo. And we found this wonderful um, a soprano who to, to to, to sing with us and um, uh, I didn't actually conduct the premiere my, my friend conducted the premiere um, but it went very successful uh, I actually did uh, two movements I forgot to mention it when I was a student at Aspen and so that gave me um, you know some uh, confidence that I could finish this project and uh, you know after that I thought okay that's that and you know nothing else would come of it um, because I didn't really think at the time that the other symphonies would work. Um, fast forward a few years, um, uh, it was the uh, 10th anniversary of um, the 9-11 uh, attacks. And 
So I wanted to do a concert being in New York and trying to do some kind of a commemoration memorial concert, not an anniversary concert. And I was thinking about, you know, what could we, you know, end with? And I've always loved the finale of Mahler's Third Symphony, you know. Um, I remember, um, uh, you know, when I think uh, when Leonard Bernstein passed away, I believe that New York Philharmonic performed just the last moment as like a tribute or a memorial. Um, and um, I said, you know, could this work for chamber orchestra? I said, well, let's try it out. And so I started studying the score and I started finding out that it looks like it, it could be doable, you know, because there were long stretches where not the full orchestra was being used. And mm -hmm. if you study Mahler's orchestration, actually, he rarely uses independent parts for each like wind instrument that he writes. Many times they're just reinforcements for doublings, you know. So it's not like the opening of Wagner's Ring Cycle where he has like eight horns playing like one after the other when you right. really need like eight horns following each other or have it, you have to be very creative as to how to rearrange that. Um, it's rare that Mahler, you know, even takes more than four horns at a time, you know, and like writes four independent parts. So you can actually get away with writing for four horns in Mahler. Um, and even his early symphonies, they were actually published as tone poems, which, and the, the, uh, the, the first symphony was originally a, uh, a, a symphonic tone poem called Titan. And that, that original orchestration was much smaller. It was more for like a medium large, you know, uh, romantic orchestra, of like, you know, double winds, four horns, something that, you know, Brahms would write for, you know. Mm -hmm. It was only later that he started adding, you know, triple and quadruple winds. And so um, I said, this looks doable. And, um, and when we, you know, when we did the performance and I was actually very um, uh, happy with, with the performance, you know, both from the arrangement standpoint and just and to have conducted it. And, you know, it started to, I started, it planted a seed and it said, you know what? Maybe there's more to this after all. And then um, later in that season, um, I was approached by um, a dance company who were, were co collaborating on a project with the composer residence, uh, Huang Ro at the time. And uh, he, uh, the, the dance um, company um, director mentioned that he wanted to do the last moment of Das Lied from Verdi, which he had done with the Schoenberg arrangement. And so uh, I was, um, he gave me a month's notice and I said, you know what, I think I can do this on my own. Uh, I can make my own arrangement. Um, and so again, because of the timing of everything, I wasn't able to work on the performance aspect of it, but I had my friend who eventually became the uh, you know, associate conductor of Ensemble 2 to perform that version. And again, it was very successfully uh, Perform that I, I've received a lot of uh, compliments on how well it was arranged, and then it kind of was like, hmm, I, I think we're onto something. And um, the following season, the friend who conducted the performance of the Last Moment of Best Lead said, "You know, I want to do Mahler's first for, um, you know, with my community orchestra, but the original is just too big. Do you think you can arrange it?" And then it just kind of like it just went off. I was like. All right, screw it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna do all the all the Mahler symphonies. And so I said, you know, I did four. I did the last moon of three. I'm gonna start from one. And I'm gonna just go all the way to the end. And so I did one for every year. But then I I took a little bit of a break because what happened was was it was just getting to be too much to do. <laughs> Try to arrange a Mahler symphony every year, right? So I got up to five. And what I'm doing now is I'm actually going back and I'm re I'm engraving these symphonies to be, have them published. So only symphonies one and four were um, um, published. But um, uh, I don't know if you know this, but you know Mark Shapiro actually uh, performed my arrangement of the third symphony in Nova Scotia in 2019. Oh, cool! And so I wasn't able to fully engrave it right away, but I engraved most of it, and I obviously gave the orchestra something presentable enough that they could actually play off of it. Right. And he told me a very funny story that Mahler's Third Symphony has never been performed in 
Nova Scotia because of the sheer size of the musicians involved. Wow. And so the performance of my arrangement was, in fact, the Nova Scotia premiere of the Mollenford Symphony. That's so cool. That's so cool. <laughs> so I, apparently I beat Mahler to his own, like, original. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so, really cool. uh, yeah, I'm on six. Oh. Um, I, I'm supposed to start six now, and um, eventually I do plan to finish all nine. But you know, I'm not in any rush to churn them out like you know, like a factory. Way behind, yes. Yeah, so. yeah. You're gonna do the first movement of the tenth. Um, we'll see. Yeah, probably. And um, I don't know. I've been told like maybe I should contact um, you know um, uh, the. Uh, the, the some of the completions that have been done to see if I could you know do a chamber version of that but there have been already many people who have done completions and chamber versions I know that there is a published version of a chamber version at least two that I know of so it's starting to catch on people are you know um, hearing about them but um, uh, it seems like so far um, the the most popular one that I of, of the ones that I've done so far has been number four, you know, with number one being occasionally performed here and there. Yeah. That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. It's really, I, it's, it's such a, I think such a mammoth feat considering how gigantic the pieces are, you know? And I mean, I remember the first time I'm looking at the full score, I was just like, what? How do you have all these people on stage and you know like if it's the second you've got a choir and you've got two vocal soloists you've got brass and percussion off stage and it's like what the <laughs> exactly <laughs> okay Mahler we see you going extra you know and that wasn't even the symphony of a thousand yet and I was just like oh my yeah. god you know so it's it's such a it'd be great I definitely want to take a peek at those and find out how you're you know contracting them just a little bit so okay so i just want to let people know that i do have uh what is it perusal scores available online for free okay. um if you go to um issue that's i-s-s-u-u dot com slash ondine press o-n-d-i-n-e-p-r-e-s-s it has uh, a cattle it has like perusal scores of all my arrangements right there that right then and there and um you know uh one one of the most proudest ones i've done is the uh orchestration of mendelssohn's octet so not only do i reduce but i also expand as well oh, cool. so yeah yeah i think um, I, I just saw your post about the nutcracker too mm -hmm. yeah so yeah. i made a, a chamber version of that and that that one is actually a, a real chamber version because there are actually many, many uh, orchestral reductions of it for chamber orchestra, but there, as far as I know, was not a version of the Nutcracker for single player, single uh, string players. They were all involved string sections. So uh, I believe one mine is the only, if not one of the only, uh, uh, arrangements for single strings. So yes, uh, the Ohio State University, they just contacted me about performing that version in this coming holiday season. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Congrats. That's amazing. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, that also was a very last minute kind of, um, uh, I guess, I guess it's, you could say it was a kind of a commission. Uh, so usually what, what's kind of interesting about my arranging work is they're not commissions. There are usually works that I want to actually just work on, you know, hmm. and uh, so I feel that in many ways, like the, the arrangements that I do are very special because it's they're close to my heart and there are things mm -hmm. I really wanted to do and nobody, you know, asked me to do it. The, the Tchaikovsky actually was uh, kind of asked upon me. Um, uh, 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 this company in, in Connecticut um, was going to perform the Nutcracker in a different theater where they had a very, very limited... Um, uh, orchestra pit. It wasn't even a pit. It was actually just kind of like a space for the musicians that was on the same level as the uh, audience. And the, 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 even the reduction that they had now would no longer fit into the space. Now they needed uh, a very, very small version. 
And um, so uh, one of the, the uh, conductors of the company asked me, you know, a good friend of mine actually, uh, said, um, you know, do you think you can arrange this? And, you know, we also need you to come and conduct. Um, except it was three weeks before the first performance of the season. Um, oh my goodness. And luckily, I had a file where the, you know, where most of the notes were inputted in a, in a very rough way. So uh, it wasn't like I was completely doing it from scratch, but they, they had like a, a, he had hired somebody to kind of input some notes of the, of the principal voices onto like a file. Mm-hmm. It's like a Sibelius file, and it was my job then to make the reduction, but then to copy and paste, you know, from that like mm-hmm. uh, data file, so to speak. Right. Um, so I didn't have to to spend time inputting the notes, but I uh, at least most of them. But I did have to kind of really conceive of this. And I had about three weeks, and um, yeah, it was it was rough, um, and. Um, uh, on the day of the first performance of the season, I was actually printing parts for the second act while the first act was being performed. Wow. You might be writing your overture on the carriage right over. <laughs> yeah, I felt I felt like Mozart when he had to write the uh, overture to Don Giovanni the night before the premiere. <laughs> right. Well, it's not something here. It's fine. Yeah. Watch so, out, bassoon. Here I come. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, there were it was it was a little rough the first couple of performances, but over time it ironed out, and um, now I'm happy to say it's, it's quite a successful arrangement. And um, there have been several groups that have performed it, uh, especially during the pandemic last year. Um, uh, this group in Oregon performed it, and this group in Hawaii also performed it as well. Oh, that's awesome. Very cool. I mean, I think you've been definitely uh, a, an inspiration. To kind of striking out and being brave, and I'm not brave. <laughs> oh, I think you're on this podcast because of you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, starting starting this podcast, I mean, that's 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 very brave, you know. Well, I, thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> I think sure. Hillary's the brave one for tagging on and not being like, "Oh boy, it's going down, Bill, it's going down." <laughs> No, I think this is a really wonderful uh, thing that you're doing. It's to, to give uh, people like me a, a, a voice to, you know, spread my thoughts and ideas because otherwise I wouldn't have that, you know. And I really like the idea of podcasts because you're not really limited to, you know, topics or even, you know, mm-hmm. time. Because um, when you're, um, you know, when you're at an interview, you know, you, you give like these very, very manufactured kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. sound bites, you know, that, you know, people want to hear or, you know, the news media kind of like forces on you. Whereas, you know, here it, it just the conversation naturally flows and you're not really like, you know, um, restricted in many ways, you know, and, um, yeah, also, cool. <laughs> yeah. And also just being, I, you know, being, I consider myself to be an independent artist. So like, I don't feel like I have to, you know, be, well, I mean, I have to be careful. I don't want to offend anybody, but I don't feel like I have to, you know, like, like walk on, you know, eggshells, not saying something I shouldn't say about some organization or some right. particular artist. Yeah. Like that, you know. Part of the larger representation, which can be great and challenging all at the same time. But yeah. For sure. So Definitely. yeah, my um, I I, th- I think it's just really really important that musicians not um, not completely you know even for people who are on the fence about you know whether music should be their breadwinning activity it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. you know you could still be a musician you could still be an artist and have other ways of you know providing for yourself and it, it absolutely in no way shape or form diminishes uh your artistry you know oh, that's a very powerful message thank you for reiterating that i think we yes. all need to hear that from time to time yes <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for being here yoon it's been an extreme pleasure and inspiring to talk to you about ensemble 212 and just being brave and uh it's been so wonderful to talk to you also just 
you know, aside from Clubhouse and hearing a voice. <laughs> Thank you for uh, having me on this podcast and giving me this um, space to uh, share my ideas and to encourage others to make uh, music. Yeah, no, you've been so inspiring. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us, um, for enjoying us, for joining us. Gosh, <laughs> and enjoying you. And enjoying us. <laughs> I can be so bold. Uh, <laughs> no, I really look forward to seeing what else you can put out. And just, I'm excited to hear more of your chamber um, arrangements. It's so freaking cool. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Hillary. And thank you, Will. Thanks for listening to the Sounds of the World podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. There are links to everything in the episode description and also on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sounds of the World. To show support for Sounds of the World podcast, please join our Patreon, where you can have access to our after-party discussions with guests, discounted merchandise, and even more. If you have any questions, answers, or episode suggestions, please email us at Sounds of the world podcast at gmail.com. Well, Bill, I think I'm going to go have a beer now. Hey, there you go. <laughs> <laughs>